The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Uh, we're going to continue today in, in Matthew chapter 11. That's where our, our, uh, our scripture will be found. And I want to encourage you to kind of uh, pull out your Bible, get comfortable. We're actually going to read uh, the entire chapter of chapter 11. Um, but it's good. You won't be disappointed, Lord willing, by what God has to say. Uh, let's, 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 continue, let's go into this. We've got a lot to do today, so let's dig in. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak in the, to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out and see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence take it by force. The violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who has come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to, to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you... Be exalted to heaven, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Well, we take up today, we pick up really where we left off. We've been working through uh, the preaching through the Gospel of Matthew since Advent of last year. And here's some good news. We're going to finish up the Gospel of Matthew in 2017. At least we're, we're highly optimistic about that. We're going to finish it up by the end of the year. And I mean, and, I, and, and, and it's good that we do this. We, as we come fresh out of Easter, we come fresh out of Easter celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ we celebrate him. It's, we're going to spend some time talking about him and, and getting to know Jesus and who he is. And what I mean is we're going to spend some time getting to know the basics of Jesus, his identity and his work. Because what we believe as a church is, is not rooted merely in just theological convictions. I mean, we do have theological convictions as a church. There are doctrines that we believe and doctrines that we, that we don't believe. But our goal as a ministry and everything that we do is motivated not by convictions of doctrine, but it's motivated by a person. Our whole ministry is rooted not in just beliefs, but in a person who is Jesus Christ. And Christianity is about a person. Christianity is about Jesus Christ. And so we want to get to know him. I was scribbling on my whiteboard in my office over the last several weeks, just making notes on sermon notes and things like that, and the title was, Who is Jesus? And someone walked into my office and said, Who is Jesus? And, and I'm like, you got to come Sunday to find out. And so, for six weeks, we'll be looking at this, this small theme within the Gospel of Matthew of answering some of those basic questions. Who is the real Jesus? Who is he? Like, essentially, at, 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 at his identity and his work, I mean, who is he? as we work through Matthew's account of his life. And so starting in chapter 11, we see this shift in the story. You see, Matthew has told us of, of all of Jesus' authoritative teaching in, in the Sermon on the Mount, which we have studied in chapters 5 to 7. And then we see Jesus healing and do wonderful, miraculous works. And in chapters 8 to, to 9, we see just 10 miracles here, just jammed packed in these, in this, these two chapters. And chapter 11 shows us three responses to all that Jesus has done and said. And there's this big shift that starts in chapter 11, where Jesus is done speaking about and teaching. He's done doing works, and now the people are responding to what he has done. And we see three responses. We see doubt, we see rejection, and we see rest. Those are the three responses to Jesus in the lives of the people in this story. It may be even fair to say that most of you, if not all of you, are living right now within one of those responses. Everyone in this room right now is doing one of those three things. You're doubting God, you're wondering, you're, you're curious about His care and concern and love for you, and you're not sure. Your faith is maybe weak, and you have questions, and you don't know where you stand with Him. Some of you may have re re be rejecting God. You're saying, I don't know why I keep coming back week after week. I don't believe in this, and, and I was dragged here by my, by my spouse or by a neighbor, but I don't believe it. And some of you are resting. Some of you are, are resting in Christ. Well, we're going to look at these three as we journey through this passage, these different responses to Jesus as we work through it. First, let's look at the doubt. People doubt him. One of the three responses, they doubt him. What do we see? Well, we see here that anyone can doubt. Anyone can doubt. John is doubting. John, the great you know, preparer of the ministry of Jesus, the one who prepared the way, the one who, was, who, who went before Christ, the one who in the womb uh, left with joy of the Holy Spirit, was filled with the Holy Spirit, who was born for this purpose, to proclaim the good news and to prepare the way for Jesus. And now he is in prison, the one who baptized so many. 
and then saw Jesus come on the scene and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. The one that says, This is the one we've been waiting for is now in prison and saying, Did I get it wrong? Did I get it wrong? Did I misread him? And even his disciples doubted him too. And I assume that this, this is how it might have played out. John is in prison and John's disciples are there with him, coming, or they're ministering to him and encouraging him. And, and John says, hey, would you go to Jesus and ask him if, if he's the one we've been waiting for, the Messiah to, to, to save us, or should we be waiting for someone else? And you know what his disciples say? His disciples say, yeah, we'll go check. They, they don't say, no, John, come on, John, you know better than this. You know who Jesus is. You know that he is the one. You know him. You, see, we look at John's doubt, but look at his disciples. All of his disciples are saying, that's a great question. We'll go ask him. Isn't that interesting? Doubt is natural within faith. We see here John, is, and Jesus would even come to say that there's no one like John. No one, there's no one better than John. No one who has been born of woman has greater faith than this man. So we see John, a Christian, doubting. Doubt is natural within faith, and it arises because of, of weakness. John's doubt is likely due because of uh, the circumstances or his expectations for how life he, he thought would go and the reality of how life is going are different. See, there's a discrepancy. Doubt comes in. And our faith is often weakened when there's a discrepancy between how we desire life to go with God and how life really goes with God. And we second guess and we say, is this really how it's supposed to go? The reality is that even for those who seem to be the most faithful to God, faith sometimes is hard. Is it hard for you? You're in good company. There is no one with greater faith that has ever been born of a woman that includes a lot of people, than John the Baptist. And he doubted, you're in good company. You're in good company. Don't be alarmed, particularly during times of great struggle. If there's particularly times of great stress, frustration, heartache, and sorrow in your life, and you are struggling in your faith, don't be alarmed. Anybody can doubt. Another thing that we learn as we observe this is not only anyone can doubt, but Jesus is okay with it. Jesus is, is comfortable with doubt. He is not surprised with doubt. How does Jesus respond when his disciples come to him and say, John wanted us to ask you, you know, we're asking for a friend. Are you the one we've been waiting for? Jesus doesn't say, hey, give this note to John, and they open it up, and it says, how dare you after all we've been through? It doesn't say that. Jesus is okay with it. He knows how you feel when you doubt. He knows what it is how you feel when you're hurting. And not only does he know how you feel when you doubt, he's ready to help. He's ready to answer your questions. Are you in a place of doubt? Jesus is ready to help. He's ready to encourage. He's ready to remind you. He's ready to teach you. He's ready to care for you. He is not waiting for you to stop doubting before he loves and ministers to you. John the Baptist, the greatest prophet who's ever lived, Jesus tells us in this passage, no better man has ever lived, and he struggles here with doubt, and Jesus is ready to help. But not only is he just ready to help, and not only is, is, uh, is, it, is it normal, but he answers our doubt. Here we see that Jesus answers our doubts. Christianity is not a, a romantic love. Do you know what I mean? What I mean by romantic love is, is this confidence in God's love is, uh, that is not based on our experience of bliss in our life. 
Our confidence and assurance of God's love for us is not based on our circumstances and how well we feel that things are going. Jesus is showing us the contrast between his salvation and the world's view of salvation. The world's understanding of salvation rests in what we attain and what we possess and what we can acquire in our life and what we attain to in our life. The world's view of salvation has to do with how well we have done. See, our value depends on what we accomplish. Our security in life depends on how successful we are. But Jesus, in his response, points us in a different direction. He does not appeal to John's desire for comfort. Do you see that? He doesn't say, tell, tell, tell John that everything's going to be okay. Because you know what we learn about in just a few chapters later? That John's killed. He's murdered. So John, Jesus does not appeal to John's desire for comfort and for circumstances to meet his expectations. But rather, Jesus speaks to those doubts. He speaks truth into his life. He invites John to look beyond his circumstances to the reality of who Jesus is and what he is doing. And in so many words, Jesus is saying, John, remember your Bible. <laughs> look at your Bible, John. Remember what has been said. Remember what has been said about me. Jesus invites John to, to doubt his doubts. He invites him to question his questions, to challenge his challenges. Do you know what I mean by that? He's pushing in on those doubts. He's not feeding into them or even answering them directly. He's pushing into them and saying, doubt what you are doubting. Look and open your eyes. Open your ears and see what I am doing. And I know things are hard right now. But instead of listening to your soul, preach to your soul. Instead of listening to all the thoughts going on in your heart and in your mind, tell your, tell your heart and your mind what is true and push back on those doubts. Jesus invites us to do the same. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Jesus closes his time with the disciples. He says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Just an interesting observation here. Jesus, Jesus was not liked by most people. Just let that sink in for just a second. Jesus was not liked by most people. Do you have a picture in your mind when you think of Jesus and his person and his relationship with the world as Jesus walking and teaching in the first century with people just enamored by him, like a rock star? Just they're loving everything he's saying. They're following him. They're, they're just like enjoying him so much. Jesus was murdered after three years of teaching. Because of what he said and what he did, they were so offensive. His teaching in public was so unpopular, it got him killed. I've been preaching the gospel publicly for 15 years, and I haven't gotten at least just a single death threat. <laughs> Do you know what that means? That means that my preaching is so much nicer than Jesus' preaching. Doesn't it? It does. Or I'm just, yeah, that's the only, that's, that's it. <laughs> That's it. Because I'm so much kinder as a preacher than Jesus was. It's interesting. What would, if Jesus was here today, most people would not like him. That's, isn't that weird? We think if you would just show yourself, if you would just be with us, everything would be better. He'd be killed all over again. If Jesus was in our church, a member of our church, most of you would not like him. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, blessed are those who are not offended 
by me? What was his teaching and why was he so offensive? He says, I love the poor. I really love the hurting. I give to those who don't deserve it. I tell good news to thieves and drunks. I welcome the stranger. I accept the outcast. I touch the unclean. I give dignity to the undignified. I tell the good news to those who have no reason to have any good news at all. And to those who have, done, have lived their life undeserving of favor, I give it to them without end. And people hated him for it. Jesus says, blessed are those who are not offended by me. If, if you have to tell somebody, blessed are those who are not offended by me, then you're doing a lot of things that offend people. So if I went up to you and said, hey, I've been wanting to talk to you, but don't be offended. I'm about to offend you really bad, right? Hey, I've been meaning to talk to you. I just wanted a, a couple minutes, but, but uh, don't take this the wrong way. I'm about to offend you. I'm about to say something that you're not going to like. Jesus is saying, tell John, don't be offended. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. That means almost everything he says is like offensive to everyone. Jesus answers John's doubts with the gospel. You know, if my son, my, if my toddler son, my five-year-old son comes up to me and says, Dad, don't get mad. He did something that's going to make me mad, right? Uh, this word offended really means, it, it literally means to be tripped up, to stumble over. Blessed are those who, are, who don't stumble over and aren't tripped up but, well, by the words that I'm saying and the ministry that I'm doing. Blessed are those who see, see what I'm doing and aren't, and aren't tempted to stumble over it. Jesus answers John's doubt with the gospel, and the gospel trips up a lot of people. The gospel says this, God saves us, we don't save ourselves. We need salvation because we're spiritually dead. And maybe even the most offensive, the gospel says, those who assume salvation based on their character or their good behavior will never find it. And those who acknowledge their own desperation and admit that they are the most unworthy, they will find it. So Jesus says in this passage, he says, it's not coming to those who are smart. It's not coming to those who think that they've attained it because they are good. It's going to come to children. It's going to come to those like children that acknowledge their dependence. See, whoever thought that grace could be so offensive? Isn't grace a wonderful word? Whoever thought that grace could be so offensive? But it is because God's grace is God's way of taking all the credit. God's grace is his way of, of, of taking all the credit. And our sinful hearts are so desperately wanting for us to take the credit. Our sinful hearts want us to be the ones that get the credit, us to be the ones that are praised, us to be the ones where God looks at us and says, good job, I knew you could do it. We want God to look at us and feel proud of who we are. But God's grace takes all the credit. Do you have doubt? It's okay that you have doubt. Jesus can handle it. He's not surprised by it. And it can serve you in the pursuit of knowing God. But there, but there is a warning here. There is a warning here in this passage that if your doubt is not used as a, as a fuel to be reminded and to seek deeper of the truths of the gospel and to preach to yourself, but rather if your doubt is used for, for you to sink deeper into unbelief and deeper into self-centered unbelief, then you're in danger of rejecting Jesus altogether. You may be in danger of, of moving from doubt that is healthy and productive to a doubt that that rejects Jesus altogether. That's the second response that we see in this passage is that there are those that reject him. Jesus answers John's doubts by pointing to himself and who he is and what he's doing and, 
And by that, John's faith is strengthened, but that doesn't happen for everyone. For many, their doubt will, will become their downfall because they fail to listen to the truth. They continue in this spiral of self-centeredness and self-righteousness. They're oriented in everything they're thinking about. They're consumed with themselves and their circumstances, and they won't listen to God's words, and they eventually depart from Him altogether. Jesus says in verse 17, as He describes the responses of so many, He says, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We played the dirge, and you did not mourn. This analogy is that of, of, a, of children at a, at a wedding or children at, at a funeral. You know that young children are the most authentic human beings on the planet. Uh, to their credit, they are authentically true at every moment of the day. Exactly how they are feeling. They're at a wedding, and it's time for the mother-son you know, mother dance or something. It's time for the first dance of the, new, the bride and the groom. And all eyes are on them, and what are the children doing? They're doing whatever they want. That's, they're doing whatever they want. I don't know what they're doing, but whatever they're doing is whatever they want. They're distracting the ceremony. They're off doing something. They're all like, you know, tagging the walls or something. They're doing whatever they want. Jesus is saying, I'm speaking and you're unresponsive. There's something very important going on and you're not even listening. Or at a funeral. There's a time for the eulogy and, and the... the, 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 the you, you Googleizer, what was it? The, the, the person giving the eulogy. Sorry, that was a, from a movie. There's <clears throat> the person giving the eulogy gets up and speaks, and all eyes are on him or her, and it's quiet. And, and, maybe, and, and what are the children doing? Whatever they want. They don't understand the situation. They don't understand the decorum. They don't understand how serious it is. They're doing whatever they want. They're unresponsive. Jesus is saying here, they are unresponsive to the weight of the message being given. It is a general unresponsiveness to the voice of God. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, and you, Capernaum. These were communities where Jesus preached the gospel, where he did mighty works, where the gospel was presented, and they responded with a general unresponsiveness to the voice of God. They did whatever they want as Jesus was telling them good news. And he says, you're really in bad shape. You need to pay attention. Tyre and Sidon were these communities that were pagan communities. These were not communities where Jesus would often preach the gospel or where he would even do works uh, to authenticate who he was or his message. This, these were just pagan places and pagan cities and Jesus says to those who, the places where he preached the gospel a lot, he says it's going to be better for them than it's going to be for you. What is he saying? He says an ungodly pagan, a non-Christian, an ungodly pagan who is unresponsive to the voice of God is better off than a good person at church who is unresponsive to God. Be careful. Be careful with your doubts. Be careful to the place where your doubts lead you. Are they leading you to a place where you are not listening to Jesus' voice at all? Where you're so uh, focused on your own circumstances and sulking and whatever's going on in your life that you have become deaf to what God is telling you? If Jesus' voice does not move you, if it does not break into your heart, if it does not stir you up, if it does not bother you to the point of moving you, it's a good time to listen. 
You need to listen today. You need to listen to the voice of God through his word right now. And now that I have your full attention, <laughs> let me tell you the good news. You know, there's a third response to Jesus. It's an invitation, really, an invitation to rest in him. To rest in him. It's a very common passage. It's a very famous passage. It's a very famous passage of Jesus. It's the most famous invitation, for sure, of Christ. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What a beautiful invitation it is. Come to me. After all that Jesus has said, what an astonishing invitation. Come to me. This is astonishing. Jesus is addressing the skeptic. He's addressing the doubter. He's addressing the rebellious, the scandalous, the pagan, the believer raised in a Christian home, the irreligious, the relativist, the atheist, the agnostic. Jesus is including everyone, even those who have rejected him. And he still says, come to me. As often as you are able, come to me. While you are able, come to me. His invitation itself is so gracious. No one is, is good enough to receive this rest on their own, but no one is too far gone to not be a good candidate for it. Who is the perfect candidate? Here's what's great. Who is the perfect candidate for the rest of God? Who gets invited? Who is Jesus opening the door to? Look closely. He gives two prerequisites. Those who labor and are heavy laden. What is the prerequisite for the, for, for the, what do I need to be first before I'm a candidate for the grace of God? Tired and weary. That's good news. All who labor. This is a straightforward enough. It's for those who are weary from work, those who are tired, those who have run out of energy in the race of faith. Those who are heavy laden, think of a freighter. Think of one of those large container ships that are filled 100 feet high with burdened and weighed down. Picture one of those pickup trucks on the weekend driving through Tucson. You know, they have 72 bicycles and six living room sets. And there's like, there's like a tire that's about to just spin off and kill everybody on the road. You've seen those trucks. That's what this is talking about. And he's saying, your life looks like that. Blessed are you if your life looks like one of those trucks that says it's about to kill everybody any moment, any moment. That's heavy laden. What kind of rest does Jesus offer? He offers soul rest. He offers rest to the person who's about to lose a wheel and kill everybody and to say, my life is about to snap and I have nothing left. Jesus would say, you're a great candidate for something called soul rest. Let me tell you about what that is. You see, Jesus isn't talking about a burden-free life. Uh, just a little later, Jesus will say, pick up your cross and follow me. And it would be great, if Jesus was talking about a burden-free life, it would be great for his disciples to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hey, man, you said, you said rest. You said if we followed you, we would find rest. And now you're telling us to die with you. He's not talking about a burden-free life. It's, it's true that when Jesus takes up our burdens, he gives us new burdens. He only replaces them with new burdens. But he's talking about soul rest, deep inner rest that is the result of yoking ourselves to him in a relationship of discipleship. Now, before I talk about the yoke, I want to talk about the soul rest. Uh, he, he gives rest to our soul burdens. 
gives rest to our soul burdens. And it's not just rest from work. Uh, that's why when you take a vacation and you have such a great time from your rest from work, you come back, and what's waiting for you at the door? Your burdens. Your lack of rest. You go right back into it, and you realize that your vacation didn't fix anything. It may help in some ways, but all your burdens are at the front door waiting for you. Jesus offers us soul rest. He offers to be our burden bearer of our deepest weights in our heart. Our soul, what is it? Our soul is used interchangeably with the heart in the New Testament. Pastor and author Paul Tripp calls it the causal core of your personhood. The causal core of your personhood. It's what drives you. It's what reveals who you truly are. It is the deepest place where your hopes and fears and aspirations reside. It is where your anxieties are formed. It is where your worries live. It is where your fears are provoked. It is from which every motion and response comes from your soul. And too often we misunderstand the desires of our soul. Some refer to you know, a spouse as a soulmate. We're looking for that perfect person that we were born to be with. And that would mean the two people that were designed for the purpose of one another. They were designed for this purpose, to find their pleasure in one another. I've heard a lot of these comments, and I'm, and I'm sorry, um, this is going to offend you. <laughs> Just trying to be more like Jesus. Um, <clears throat> You look at your life or what you desire and to do and say in your life, and you say, I was, born to be, I was born to be a mother. I was born to be an engineer. I was born to marry so-and-so. I was born to live on the beach. I was born dot, dot, dot. I want to talk to you, and this may offend you. No, you weren't. The only thing you were born to do is to find your rest in Jesus. To be born to do anything else will disappoint you. Because if you lose a child, if you lose a spouse, if you lose your job, if you lose your home, if you lose your money, with it takes all your joy and all your peace. You were not born for any of those things. You were born to find your rest in Jesus. You know, verse 28 through 30 is a really great passage, but we can't understand it without verse 27. You know, 28 through 30 of Jesus saying, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. What a great passage. But we need to understand in the context of verse 27, where Jesus says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus, as the loved and obedient Son of God, is given authority over all of creation, all things seen and unseen. The Father, picture, this, picture this, uh, this little portrait here. God the Father, who has created all things, says, Here, my son, it's all yours. Do with it what you want. And the Son looks back at the Father and says, Can I give some to those whom I love? And God the Father says, It's yours. Do with it what you want. And he says, anything? And he says, yes, anything. What do you want to give to them? And Jesus looks through the treasure chest of God's blessing and says what? What's the best thing I want to give them? I want to give them rest for their souls. The most important thing, the best thing. And Jesus is delighted to give it to you. And, and how delighted is he, is, he, is he to give the rest to you? So much so that he would go to the cross so that you can have it. 
He becomes our burden bearer on the cross as he dies for our sins. He takes the weight of God's judgment. God, his father, says, you can do anything you want to do. What do you want to do? I want to die for them so that they can know the rest that I have. And together in heaven, God the Father and the Son, they come up with this plan to give rest to weary souls, to bear the burdens of those who are weighed down, who are about to snap, who have lost things in life, and their identity is wrapped up in their burdens. And they say, I don't know how I can get out of this. Jesus becomes our burden bearer, bearing our sins on the cross, dying in our place so that we can find rest for our souls. Soul rest does not have to be a phantom. Soul rest does not have to be this thing that certain people find because they have the personality for it. It doesn't have to be only for people who don't have a troubled past or a broken past. It doesn't have to be for those who have just intellectually engaged with God's word where they've figured it out. It doesn't have to be for people with a certain personality type. It is for all whom Jesus has called to himself. It is for all whom Jesus has revealed it to. Has has Jesus called you into a relationship with him? I mean, do you believe that and convinced of that, that you trust in the gospel, that you believe that he died for you and you trust in Jesus, then anything less than a deep, abiding soul rest in your life is, is setting the bar way too low. If you believe in the love of God for you, that Jesus died for you, and you trust him, you're a Christian, then until you get that abiding soul rest, you're not done. And he's not done with you. Why would our soul be burdened? Well, our soul is burdened and weighed down when we are not knowing the rest that Jesus gives. And we continue to anchor our value and our hope and our identity and our rest in the things that were never designed to give us that rest. Things like people and things and positions and titles and obedience and even personal righteousness. I, uh, my wife, I asked my wife if I can share this story. She said it was okay. But now I'm second guessing it. <laughs> oh, I don't have any more coffee. Oh my. Okay, well, often Janae will ask me, you know, what are you preaching on this week? And we'll talk about it and I'll tell her what I'm preaching on. And, it was this last week, at the beginning of the week, Janae said, so what are you going to preach on this Sunday? And I said, you know, as I, I think I was making eggs or making coffee, and I don't even look her way, I just kind of gently and under my breath say, you know, finding your rest in God. And she laughed out loud. As if to say, good luck with that. <laughs> as if to say, so there's a guest preacher this week? <laughs> as if to say, what do you know about that? What do you know about that? I'll answer that question honestly. Far too little. If I had a stool, I'd probably sit down and just talk to you for a little bit, but I don't have a stool, so I'll continue to stand. There's an evil temptation. There's an evil temptation that we're all faced with to resist the rest of God. And the appeal to resist the rest of God is pride. Pride in self. Pride in our ability, pride in the way we wanted life to go, and we're disappointed that it didn't go that way. And to rest in God brings with it a new burden, a burden of dying to ourself and taking yourself and your desires off of the throne of your life and putting Jesus there. 
Trusting in Jesus is the hardest thing that you'll ever have to do. If you're feeling burdened, you're feeling like you don't have the rest of God, if you feel that it is hard to live by faith, it's the hardest thing to do. And so don't be alarmed. I preach the gospel every single week. I tell you about Jesus every single week. In some form, I tell you about Jesus as our burden bearer. And I can't help but feel like John so often. Not finding rest because of my circumstances. Not finding rest because of my struggle with sin. Not finding rest because of this discrepancy between how I want my life to go and how it really is going. Are you there? Well, join me on the stool then. (laughs) And I hear Jesus' invitation to rest, and I seriously pause and I think about it. And this is the weird, horrible, sinful thing that happens in my heart. Maybe it happens in yours. I feel burdened in my life, and I hear Jesus' gentle call to rest and trust in him. And you know the first thing that goes through my mind? I'm actually debating whether or not I'm going to take it or not. I'm actually deciding, am I going to do that or not? Am I going to continue in my burden, trying to fix it on my own? Am I going to continue to see if I can do this because I'm capable, I'm smart, I'm well-educated? I don't need to rest in Him. I don't need to. Let's see how far I can take this on my own without Him. It's interesting that we do that. I would rather, and it's so much easier to be burdened than it is to rest. Isn't that weird? Isn't it easier to be miserable than happy? It's easier to, to, to just dwell on your circumstances than it is to just rest in Jesus. A friend of mine told me this week that, that the flesh loves fleshly things, and I thought that was so helpful for me. The flesh, which is the sin nature in all of us that is opposed to the work of God, of His Spirit in us, loves to not rest in Jesus' finished work on the cross. The flesh that is in opposition to God's Spirit that is working in us to rest in Christ loves that we debate with ourselves, am I going to rest in God in this situation or not? And the flesh is saying, I'm so glad he's debating it. He's doubting he might not rest in Jesus because the flesh loves to be fleshly. The flesh loves to groan. The flesh loves to moan and complain and to blame and to be selfish and to be contentious and to worry and to fear and to gossip and to compare and to doubt and to rebel. The flesh loves those things. And so hear from me now. It is a sin to not rest in Jesus. You see, this isn't just an invitation. It's a command. You can see it all through this passage. Jesus is telling us what to do. He says, come to me. Take my yoke. Learn from me. Rest in me. And we're saying, thanks for the advice, I'll think about it. He says, no, this is a command. If you don't rest in me, you're disobeying me. 28 to 30 is an invitation, but don't don't misunderstand Jesus' words only as an invitation. It's a command. A worried and weary and burdened soul is a direct result of a sin of not resting in Jesus. It's not an option. Resting in Jesus is not for some. It is for all to whom Christ has given his love. How do we rest? I'm going to finish off with just these three quick takeaways. How do we rest? Trust even with a limited perspective. Whenever we go through difficult situation, when we are, our expectations for how things should go don't match how we want them to go, we need to remember that our perspective 
is limited. That if we, here's a reality here to comfort you, if you saw your life like God sees your life, you wouldn't worry about a thing. If you had the mind and the understanding as you will in heaven in eternity, you will look back on your current situation and you will feel fine. And so you realize, how do we rest? Well, you realize first that God cares for you. He knows what you are doing. You have to realize that God knows everything. And you can't base your understanding and your feeling and your situation based on what you know is going on right now. The definition of trust is choosing to rely on Jesus without having all the information. And you and I just don't have all the information. We won't this side of heaven. We won't have it. So learn to trust in God and who he is, knowing, God, you care for me. I'm going to choose to trust in you even when I don't have all the facts. Second, joyfully submit yourself to God's word. Even when it is not easy, we recount the truth and preach the truth to ourselves. Like Jesus recounts the truth of the gospel and who he is and what he has done, we have to recount the truth of the gospel to our heart in our circumstances. We choose to remain grounded on Jesus and his words. We taught in Matthew 7 uh, weeks ago where Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The reward of submission to God's truth, even in the midst of difficulty, is the blessing of God's rest. The blessing of the presence, of the, the comfort of his presence in our life. And lastly, learn the ways of a disciple. Take his yoke. You know, a yoke was uh, used for a young and, and experienced ox or a bull at the time. The young and inexperienced ox would be yoked or tied at the shoulder to an older, more tame, and, and experienced beast of burden to learn the way. And it was, a, it was a metaphor that was used for rabbis and their disciples and all those who, who followed their teachers. They would be yoked to them. And you wouldn't just go to class and become a student. You would live with this guy. You would live with your teacher. You would follow him around. And Jesus says, learn from me. Yoke yourself to me. Connect yourself to me. And my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a beautiful picture of what it means to be connected to Jesus. What it means to learn the way of a disciple is to be in relationship with him, to pursue him. He wants us to be in relationship with him where we are walking with him like an apprentice. We are learning from him. We are talking with him. We are resting in his word. We are continually seeking him and choosing to trust in him when we have limited information and to know that he's good. Jesus wants us to know that he's, he's good. He's, he's gentle. He is kind. He cares for us. You cannot live for yourself and have a healthy relationship with Jesus. You cannot go your own way and figure it out on yourself and still be a disciple of Jesus. You cannot love and live for your work and be in a good relationship with Jesus. You cannot live for your children and have a healthy relationship with Jesus. You cannot find your rest in anything other than Christ and have a good relationship with him. But if you're yoked to him and you live for him, that he tells us then all these things will be added to you. If you seek first the kingdom of heaven and all his righteousness, all these things, God will take care of you. All of these responses are extreme. You'll either be extremely troubled in your life, as some of you may be right now, 
never knowing where you stand with God. You may be extremely opposed to Jesus because of his radical message that salvation comes only through him, or you will be extremely restful. You will be extremely at rest, not because you've figured it out or you're free from trouble, but because you've yoked yourself to him. And of course, you know the way you should go. You know to be yoked to him, to be extremely at rest. Pursue him. Let's do that. Let's pray. It's our Heavenly Father. Would we be yoked to you? We, uh, we preach to prepare ourselves and prepare our hearts to receive you in our lives. To receive the supper, the Lord's Supper, this brief meal that we take together, where we attempt to do all three of these responses where we trust in you with limited information. We don't know what's happening tomorrow, but we are choosing to follow you. We are choosing to submit ourselves to the truth that you've revealed to us and to preach the gospel to us that you've died for our sins in our place, that you are our hope. And we're choosing in this meal to yoke ourselves to you, to walk with you, to, to form our life based on who you are and what you have done, to, to ask forgiveness for our sin, and to proclaim the good news to our hearts. I pray we would all do that now as we take this meal together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.